Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at www.westernfrontassociation.com. Today is the 12th of June 2017. This episode is an expanded version of an interview I did with psychologist and historian Peter Hodgkinson earlier this year. Peter's latest book, Glum Heroes, published by Hellion & Co, examines how soldiers psychologically coped and endured with the stress and strain of trench warfare during the First World War. I started the interview by asking Peter to explain how his background as a psychologist shaped why he wrote this book. Well, I mean, I've been a clinical psychologist for nigh on 40 years now, Um, and I began with working with trauma and bereavement and sudden death in in the late 70s. And I was one of the first psychologists to work with major disaster in the UK when the notion of post-traumatic stress was almost an unknown phrase. And and I did some work with people following the Zeebrugge disaster on how they responded to damaged human remains. But when I began the MA in British First World War Studies 12 years ago, I began pondering about how soldiers responded to the presence of human remains about them, and that led to a dissertation. And as as part of that dissertation, I started thinking about how soldiers grieved the deaths of their comrades and I was really quite surprised to find how brief their reactions were and it occurred to me that friendship obviously was uh, of a different nature in those days to modern friendship um, and, and it was basically it was these sorts of issues that galvanized me in, into thinking that, that basically the way we look at the soldiers of the First World War now is through a very sentimental vision which is governed by our modern preoccupations about relationship uh, and the psychologization of society. One of the things that really irritated me, having been one of the first psychologists to work with post-traumatic stress, was how the notion of trauma was taken over by everybody. So the things I described as trauma 15 years ago, 20 years ago, were serious things. And nowadays we use the, the word trauma describe things that are really quite trivial and the words anxiety and depression and stress they trip off our tongues every day and these simply weren't words that we used a uh, hundred years ago so so we sort of look back and we apply all this sort of modern thinking um, mm-hmm. to the soldiers of a hundred years ago we assume they were traumatized we use modern terms to describe their experiences and these may not be appropriate i remember a couple of years ago in stand two there was a there was a one-page article that uh, set out the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder as if somehow this was an explanation in retrospect of shell shocks which it patently isn't I, i wrote this book assuming that it was easy to set out how awful the soldiers experience of the great war was i set out to find out what contemporary attitudes mitigated the awfulness of the war for them. So what modulated their stress? When considering what protected soldiers from the effects of trauma in the trenches, what was the impact of contemporary Edwardian social norms and values, such as stoicism, widespread Christianity, manliness and duty? 
Well, this is really the key to it all. And as somebody once said, and I can't think who it is just at the moment, that the past is a foreign country. And our problem is that we live in an age where stoicism, manliness, duty, they're not only just out of fashion, they're seen as an aberration of an, an, aberration of an unenlightened past. Take, for instance, religion. They lived in an age where religion was universal, but their understanding of religion was terribly different to ours. Most of them had a very simple faith. I mean, people were not regular churchgoers. They went to, their, they went to church for baptisms, marriages, funerals. And in between that, their simple faith was, was almost a folk religion. So it was basic ideas of heaven and hell mixed with superstition, yet it was very widely held. And religion, far from people losing their faith during the war, religion in, in, in actually increased, churches increased their membership during the war. But the soldier in the trenches used this sort of simple folk religion in terms of well, what I've called in the book emergency or, or insurance policy religion. They got religious in the hours before they went into battle. That was the time at which they prayed. Similarly, with this sort of element of sort of folk superstition attached to religion, they would, they would adopt all sorts of ta talisman in, in the trenches. And the museums of the, uh, of the UK are actually littered with these small talisman that soldiers carried into battle. So religion was was one bedrock. Um, John Terrain, in his, um, his his edited version of the Bickerstaff Diaries, which is a marvellous book if anybody wants to read it, talks about the ways in which people in the Edwardian era are different for us. And he says religion and patriotism. These are these are so important. Um, one of the other, and perhaps we'll come back to patriotism in a minute. Um, but perhaps one of the really really bedrock things apart from Christianity. Although people at the time would not have would not have named it as such, was was Stoicism, and Stoicism is 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 a Greek philosophy that stems from the philosophers, the Greek philosopher Zeno, the Roman philosopher Epictetus, and there are two really important aspects of Stoicism that that impact on life in the trenches. First of which, I mean, the major tenet of Stoicism was that. Emotions were, ex were essentially, emotions, feelings were essentially rogue byproducts of wrong-headed thought. And that, interestingly, is very similar to cognitive behavior therapy as psychologists apply it today. So the implication is you master your emotion by changing your thoughts. So the second important tenet of stoicism was that one, one must accept and not seek to change what cannot be changed. And this was incredibly important in the trenches because one of the, one of the main feelings that men had was a sense of helplessness and powerless. So they did many, many things to try and within their, within their limit to increase their sense of, their, their sense of being in control of things. Um, and it wasn't just that Stoicism uh, and, uh, and the, 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 the thoughts about Stoicism were for the upper classes. I mean, the whole bedrock in Victorian and Edwardian society of the working classes was about acceptance of the daily grind. They were the ultimate Stoic. And attached to, to Stoicism also, which, which underwent a real revival during the, the Victorian era. It's interesting that if you look at the Edwardian era, mm -hmm. men, men were valued 
um, because they were emotional. Um, it was seen as a sign of good breeding to be emotional and nervous. This completely changed during the Victorian era. And, and as part of this, the, it became wrapped, Stoicism became wrapped up in the no, notion of Victorian manliness, this sort of imperial Christian warrior. And the, the notion developed of muscular Christianity in the public schools through forts and a sort of a real imperial killer warrior with, with, with his gun tackling the heathen in the world. And this, again, was not just something that the public schools developed, this was inherent in the scouting movement and all the boys club and the middle classes in the late Victorian and early Edwardian era were really smuggling middle class values into the working class through all sorts of um, in social work type initiatives even in the comics of the era so it, it, it's not that, the, that these sorts of beliefs were held by the middle classes they were held by the bulk of, of, pop, of the population. As part of this sort of muscular Christianity, there was a strong sense of patriotism that was held by all. There was a love of, there was a love of a monarchy, there was a love of country. Even if for the working class, this was, a, this was tended to be a slightly diluted thing into local loyalty. So men went into the trenches with a, with, with, with a bedrock of religion, a bedrock of control of emotion, the stiff upper lip as, as, as we think of it. Um, they learned to contain themselves. They had models from Stoicism which provided a, a vision of, of how you coped with fear. You did not show fear, you managed fear. And if, if, if you read the, the writings of many, many soldiers, you see how they actively stage managed their fear. They became courageous actors. So all these attitudes, societal attitude to how you were to present yourself provided a real container to the, the most troublesome things in trench warfare, notably fear. You've no, you listed a lot of really important um, aspects. I suppose it, it's rather facetious to actually pull out one single factor that kept men going but if you had to what would you say was the, was the key thing that that kept soldiers from actually running away soldiers went to war for for a variety of reasons patriotism you know for one excitement for another but what kept running men from running away if you want to put it like that the, the reason that motivated them most to continue fighting was their mates but we're not talking about modern friendship here and this is where i think we tend to get terribly terribly sentimental about the first world war and thinking that people grieve terribly for the loss of their com their comrades we're not talking about modern friendships here modern sort of friendships in which you confide emotion of personal detail friendships of that era were sort of popping in type of friendship the, the, the working class often distrusted their neighbors ra rather than sort of popped in and relied on them all the time and in fact friends tended to mean family at the time Fr friendships weren't these sort of deep things that we prize nowadays they, they were instrumental they were based on doing sharing and friendship during the war was much like the sort of friendship that men in, enjoyed in pre-war workplaces. He had the same relationship with the next guy in the, in the fire bay as he did the man at the next workbench in his pre-war job. And this was a very, very, it, it, it's not individualistic friendship like we, had, like we, like we enjoy nowadays. Mm, yeah. It's about a group mutualism and solidarity. And this was a very, very strong and powerfully motivating thing, even if 
if it was not deep and rich in emotion, which is why I say men often did not grieve the deaths of their fellow soldiers in the way that we would grieve today. The word they most often use is, is, is sadness. And, and finally, there was a popular view that soldiers suffered and returned from the war, damaged individuals, alienated from their family and unable in, to reintegrate into civilian peacetime society. This suggests that veterans uh, psychologically cope poorly from their experience in the trenches. But did you find this was the case? Well, to sort of to over, overplay the idea of psychological damage undervalues coping. And to underestimate it downplays the awfulness of the war. And what we've got to do is to draw a distinction between people who were affected by their experiences and those who were severely traumatized by their experiences. Now, every man is going to be affected by his experiences in war, but we mustn't, mustn't forget that shell shock is not a synonym for suffering. I mean, over five million men served as soldiers during the war. I mean, the official tally for nervous shock casualties was 80,000 as presented in the official medical history of the war. There's a better estimate provided by Peter Leith in his book on shell shock, which gives a figure of 200,000. Jay Winter, that, uh, that uh, is a historian of, of, of emotion in the Great War, suggests that up to 40% of men were traumatized. But if Peter Lees is correct that the figure is 200,000 were sort of proper clinical nervous shock casualties, then 9% of casualties during the Great War were psychological casualties. And that's much less than the, than the Second World War. I mean, men were clearly temporarily affected and recovered returning to duty. Men were clearly came back from the war nervous and recovered in a year or two after the war. We also, I, I think, when we look at a nervous soldier, we presume that the war was the cause of it. Yet research done at the time in Salonika suggests that about half of the psychiatric casualties in that theatre of war had a previous history of, of nervous disorder. I mean, similarly, um, the number of veterans who committed suicide is, of course, unknown. But in research on Australian veterans, actually in 1920, the suicide rate was lower in Australia in nine, than in 1915. So it was lower when the bulk of the veterans had actually returned from war. And the peak of suicide in Australian veterans was in 1930, which is, of course, associated with the, with the economic depression. So there's the problem that coping in the aftermath of war for the veterans was multiply determined. It's got a whole range of causes, some of which are, are not associated with the war itself. And just one last thing in terms of how we sort of put a modern perspective on, or of trauma on looking backwards, we assume that these men must have had all sorts of horrible flashbacks and nightmares as, as a result of their experience in the trenches. And a recent study of pension records indicate that only 1% of men who had a pension for psychological reasons reported experiencing flashbacks. And this is a really interesting thing because it raises the questions about actually whether men's brains were different in those days. Because we live in a very, very visual environment of television and film and computer imagery, and they did not. So our brain, our modern brains, are attuned basically to experiencing flashback. And there's another way in which that they were different. Peter, thank you very much for your time. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. 
theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>